Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In her new book, On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies, Lauren S. Foley explores what has led to a current crisis at American colleges and universities. Lauren Foley is an assistant professor of political science at Western Michigan University. Her book is published by NYU Press, and she joins us now. Welcome. Hello, Leonard. Thank you for having me. So why haven't the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision 1954 and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 resolved the matter of how organizations have both complied and resisted public policies regarding race? Well, we actually have 50 years of precedent on the Supreme Court before this year, 2023, that actually upholds the use of universities mm-hmm. practicing affirmative action for the purpose of pursuing a racially diverse student population. But not now. Is it just simply a not matter now. of the makeup of the court that, that now uh, it is uh, uh, there's a six to three conservative to liberal split? Is that simply the reason? Yeah, I mean, it it should be shocking that 50 years of precedent on the Supreme Court can be overturned uh, as quickly as it was in June of 2023 with the Students for Fair Admissions decision. But um, it's it's not surprising, I think, after decisions like Dobbs, we know that this court is very willing to take a sharp eye at precedent and make a radical departure. So what was... The, the basis of the Supreme Court decision on students for, for fair admissions missions versus Harvard and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Yeah, it really is new personnel in the court and new opinions about what the Constitution protects for race-conscious public policies. And as we know, um, the Constitution, if you are going to have a a race-conscious public policy, the the Constitution requires a compelling interest or a very, very, very good reason for why you need to use race in that policy. And um, prior Supreme Court precedent as recently as 2016 Hmm. was okay with the pursuit of racially diverse student populations in higher education as a compelling interest for the use of race in admissions policies. And that was a conservative court as well, wasn't it? Or was it? Yeah, that was still the Roberts court with Justice Kennedy there as as the the swing vote. Um, That would it's still very much a a conservative court. And what we saw is the uh, departure of Kennedy um, and the the addition really of of three Hmm appointees by President Trump that have swung the court on this issue. It's um, There's still some mm-hmm. openings in the future where it'll be interesting to see where this court goes, but certainly um, the landscape right now for admissions in higher education is radically different than it was six months ago. Yeah, well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg also um, unfortunately passed away. You say that when you began working on this book, the writing was on the wall that the high court would strike down race-conscious admissions. You say your only question was, how sweeping would the ban be? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the when I originally started collecting the data, no, I didn't. Uh, we, you know, that it was still during the second Obama administration, um, and uh, did, did not anticipate this sharp rightward turn. But um, as I wrap up the manuscript, and we have the three Trump appointees on the court. Um, 
you know, as soon as really as, as soon as uh, Justice Gorsuch and and uh, certainly Justice Coney Barrett arrive, we know that the the what was previously the minority on affirmative action is now the new majority, and we have their opinions from 2003 case from a t- 2016 case, and and we again it was shocking but not surprising to see students for fair admission come out the way it did in June. What did Justice Sonia Sotomayor say in her dissent to the ruling? So there is a there's strong legal interpretation and dissent that the practice of affirmative action in higher education is protected, um, both because diversity should be a compelling interest, um, and also because and this is more the dissent of Justice uh, Jackson because the the Fourteenth Amendment historically can be understood the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment can be understood to protect policies like affirmative action. Um, there are uh, there's constitutional interpretation that supports the continued use of affirmative action, and those votes just were not in the majority for the Students for Fair Admission case. But don't you argue that the schools can comply with the Supreme Court ruling and still pursue racial diversity as a policy? Yeah. Yeah, this is the topic of my book, is uh, how do organizations leave a ban on a practice and then still continue to pursue their mission anyways. So how is affirmative action banned and yet universities still go forward prioritizing racial diversity? I should give a big caveat here, which is that if you are, if your goal is racial diversity in your undergraduate population or your higher education population, affirmative action is a very precise tool. It's a very sharp, precise tool. Without that tool, you are left with more blunt instruments. You cannot act as precisely as you can without affirmative action. So you can still pursue diversity and still maintain some levels of racial diversity, but not in the precise ways that we saw with affirmative action. So universities are still going to be hurt here um, in pursuing racial diversity without the tool of affirmative action. My book just explores how they will continue to, to push as hard as they can to be in compliance and still pursue these principles. When you began studying the subject in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, there was no national ban. Uh, that that came, well, 10 years later. Yeah. So was it a state-by-state state issue at that time? Yeah. For the a ban on, a national ban on affirmative action is a 2023 development, but uh, we have seen states ban affirmative action before, and even the 5th District Federal Court banned affirmative action in 1996 for all the states under its jurisdiction, one of which is the University of Texas at Austin, which I study uh, in the book. So we've seen elite selective universities responding to affirmative action bans before. And in that way, my book can be seen as a bit of a guidepost going forward for how universities newly under an affirmative action ban now may proceed. So it was a state-by-state issue. What role has affirmative action played in admission policies? Hasn't the goal been to increase access to education for groups that are socioeconomically disadvantaged or have faced historical discrimination or oppression? Isn't that a good yeah, thing? That's a- that's a great point, and I think that gets lost a lot in the conversation, is that university administrators, presidents, admissions offices have always pursued a broad diversity among its students, both for students from uh, you know histor- uh, his- historically uh, disadvantaged groups and also socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. And race has been one of many different ways in which universities have, have pursued diversity, and they can still, after students for fair 
look at socioeconomic status, uh, background, hardship, disadvantage in their admissions process, they just can't give a preference to race, one of many different factors of diversity that universities were looking at in their admissions processes. Also religion and economic diversity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, when we say we understand what racial discrimination is, what does religious discrimination mean? Obviously, uh, a Catholic university isn't going to be too happy admitting Jewish students, is it? You know, that's a that's a hasn't come before the court yet. Um, our constitution would look very carefully at religious discrimination in the same way it does with racial discrimination. It would look less carefully at gender discrimination, um, although we have statutes protecting against that. These are certainly areas that you know could be challenged again in the future. Now that we know that the court is saying, sorry, diversity on its own sake is, a, is no longer a compelling interest. We're willing to say that, and, and these might be cases that the court sees in the future. And that includes economic diversity? No, I, I would doubt that because economic diversity, um, we don't have prior constitutional case law protecting that as something you can't discriminate against. Uh, People who are socioeconomically disadvantaged are not a, quote, suspect class in the, the words of the Constitution. And actually, the conservatives who bring these cases and have brought the state ballot initiatives in the past that have amended state constitutions are socioeconomic diversity is, is one of the avenues that they promote for admissions offices. Their line of reasoning is instead of using race, look at socioeconomic diversity instead as your way of pursuing a diverse class. There have been a lot of uh, rallies on campuses recently in regard to what's happening in the Middle East. Should I be surprised that there haven't been rallies on campuses in regard to this story, this situation? Uh, you know, I was a little surprised by that. There's certainly uh, organizations uh, that came to the Supreme Court and, and protested there. Um, if you look at public opinion on affirmative action, it's kind of split, actually, about a third for, a third against, and a third don't know how they feel. Um, so I don't think that this is as politically salient or as politically contested an issue as, say, abortion or other cases that the Supreme Court have heard. And that's but that's because some people don't even imagine going to to colleges or universities or sending their kids there. That is that is true. Um, the one of the consequences of affirmative action bans, as other research has shown, not my book, but other research, is that it has basically a chilling effect on people's interest in certain colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. They think, OK, now I can't get in. Not me anymore. I'm not even going to try. And it really discourages people, uh, racial minorities from applying to those institutions. And how does it apply to scholarships? You can get in, but you're not necessarily going to be given any economic support? Um, I mean, certainly scholarships based on socioeconomic status, um, are, you know, a, a predominant form of financial aid. They're expanding, actually, at the, the top uh, universities and colleges in the country, and, and those are not touched by the Students for Fair Admission decision. Students for Fair Admission does not go into detail about scholarships. They're focused on the admissions process. I think scholarships is certainly an area where the court could go next. With scholarships and also targeted recruitment programs that colleges run in order to get certain students to check out their college, get interests and apply. If those are race conscious, they're likely to be on the horizon for court challenges. So 
some colleges are actually looking to bring certain students to their schools. Yes, colleges. So and, 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 and if I and if I am excluded because somebody else got in, I can sue and complain. Well, that person got in because of race or religion or or whatever or, or economic status, but also uh, hasn't the Supreme Court decided that it's okay? Um, legacy uh, preferences are okay. Yeah. So so um, two two things here. There's a number of different policies at the university that a student who feels like been discriminated against could challenge. They could, could ch- challenge if they felt like they were excluded from a, an recruitment program for prospective students that what they feel like was based on race. Here in Students for Fair Admission, they challenge the actual admissions policy themselves. And then they could also s- challenge scholarship policies you know, uh, scholarships that are they feel are based on race that are given to accepted students as an attempt to get those students to go to that campus. Um, you could see challenges for those as well. Um, legacy admissions uh, is definitely an area that people have been talking a lot about since the decision also preferences for recruited athletes and the extent to which Ethically, they feel like universities should still be pursuing those policies, given that they can no longer do affirmative action based on race. So what about athletes, uh, a kid who is really fabulous as a high yeah. school basketball player but has low grades? Does that kid uh, getting preference, uh, is that an issue? Uh, legally an issue or ethically? Two different things. Address both, of course. Yeah. So there's been a lot of of writing around legacy preferences, less on athletes, but a lot of writing since the the June decision about legacy preferences um, that actually came up in oral argument. Um, And the Supreme Court decided that if a parent went to the school that that the child could go to the same school, even if the child didn't have the same kind of academic ability. Yeah, they didn't touch that issue in the opinion. Um, now, the, the facts of the case were limited to uh, a challenge based on race. So you could maybe see a future challenge. Um, I don't, there might be an ethical issue there. I'm not sure if there's a constitutional issue there because the court hasn't previously in the past uh, said that uh, access to universities is either a constitutional right or that people who went to or did not go to a college are a protected class. So it would be analyzed differently than a public policy based on race. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Lauren S. Foley. Her book, On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies, published by NYU Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. What do you make of how universities have responded so far to the Supreme Court's decision? Yeah, uh, creative. A lot of um, passion and creativity. Are, are the big adjectives there. Universities are protective of their missions around racial diversity. Uh, the, I go into this research in my book. They feel like the the need to have a racially diverse class is part and parcel with the quality of the education that they give students. Um, they have a sincere commitment to it, a strong conviction, and they don't want to give up pursuing racial diversity. So they're responding creatively, um, innovatively with new ideas, trying to find ways to comply with this this decision, but still ensure some kind of diversity in their classes. Are there universities and colleges that don't want racial diversity? Is Has that been an issue? Yeah. Anymore? 
Yeah. So this is this is really interesting, and I'm glad you brought up this question as well. This is not my research, but research uh, that that sociologists have done before my book came out. Um, which again is a bit of a chilling effect that um, they documented that universities and colleges that were not under the jurisdiction of state bans, so they didn't exist in states that had a ban, that many of them that weren't as selective have started to back away from uh, explicit consideration of race in their campus policies and in their admissions policies. I, they they hypothesize that this is because of perhaps the fear of a, a legal challenge. I mean, these cost millions of dollars for universities to litigate and, and um, defend these policies. So the highly selective universities are very vocal, um, very committed to their um, uh, diversity of all forms on campus. But I I can imagine based on this research that the less selective universities may back off uh, talking about racial diversity at all and instead emphasize a broader form of student body diversity and one focused on socioeconomic status. Should I assume that the differences are regional, that uh, racial diversity is less important to schools in the South than it is in, in to schools in the North? Yeah. So this is, again, not my research. It's it's uh, research I've read that other people have done, but they determined actually that it was more based on uh, selectivity and the resources of the school. So you might hypothesize that like school endowment has something to do with this. Mm-hmm. Also to selectivity, the more selective the school, the more necessary affirmative action is. For less selective schools that are really just asking students to meet a minimum GPA threshold, uh, Affirmative action doesn't come into play in deciding who does and does not get an offer of admission. Your book includes a series of case studies of how schools have used different strategies to get around this problem, what you call resistance compliance. Yes. Yep. Resisting while still complying. So how have uh, the admissions officers who played a role in the fight to protect racial diversity in higher education been able to work around the law so that they can maintain diversity now that affirmative action has been banned? Yeah, lots of different strategies. Um, a, a great example, and one that I think is going to be we're going to see nationally more and more, is universities like the University of California, Berkeley, or UCLA, who get tens of thousands of applications every year, instead of having a more formulaic admissions process, one that looks at how hard your classes were, what your grade point average was, what your SAT score was, and then basically generates an admissions decision from that and and type of formula, are shifting to really reading holistically all components of a student's application and and looking for adversity, um, leadership, uh, educational disadvantage, socioeconomic disadvantage, um, any indicator that they come from backgrounds that are underrepresented on that campus. And to do this, it requires so much money. You have to hire so many more admissions readers to read an application multiple times. It's a much more involved, detailed, and resource-intensive process than a more formulaic one, but it will yield a more diverse class. But for universities that get you know tens of thousands of applications and they have to do this in four months, hmm. this is going to take a lot of work and a lot of money. Well, you describe how the University of Texas and uh, the University of Michigan, where you teach, have responded differently to the uh, University of California system uh, in regards to bans and court decisions. 
Yes, absolutely. So um, the University of Michigan, I actually am at Western Michigan, a, a couple hours west, but the University of Michigan really innovatively adopted a new software product that uh, was on the market for a different purpose. And they looked at this software product as a way to analyze the kind of high schools and the kind of neighborhoods that students come from and to find the ones that are most underrepresented already in their student population and to give an admissions advantage in the process to students who are underrepresented on their campuses which has the effect of helping students who might go to um, a majority all-Black high school mm -hmm. in Detroit, but also help students who might go to a rural majority white high school in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. So again, um, without affirmative action, you're left with much more blunt instruments to get it at racial diversity, but it's it's still possible to maintain some level of diversity. Well, after, um, Texas, go oh, ahead. yes? No, I know. Go ahead. Finish. Yeah, so the the Texas was very interesting in that it was the state legislature that came up with a solution, uh, a race neutral solution to help uh, buttress some diversity in, in the state's universities. The solution was generated actually by faculty at the University of Texas who looked statistically at segregation in Texas high schools and found that um, if you accept the top 10% of all graduating seniors from every Texas high school because of how segregated Texas high schools are, you will be ensuring a certain level of racial diversity at the universities. Well, Texas was one of the uh, southern states during the Civil War. Um, after the, the Michigan ban, weren't students who weren't getting into the University of Michigan admitted to Northwestern University in Illinois? <laughs> Yeah, so this is another interesting point about kind of the patchwork. Has that changed of, now that there's a national ban? Yeah, so um, this is a, an interesting point about the patchwork nature of bans then versus the national ban now. If you're a highly selective national university like the University of Michigan or Berkeley or UCLA, you're competing for students against universities all across the country, and yet you are the only ones under an affirmative action ban, right? It only affected eight states before June of this year. And so you were at a competitive disadvantage when going after top students who are racial minorities. Now, everybody is going to be under this ban. And I'm sure a lot of universities, I, I don't know specifically about Northwestern, but I can imagine that uh, selective, highly selective university like Northwestern now suddenly under an affirmative action ban is probably turning to its peers in states with previous bands asking, how did you do this? How did you get this done? And what should I do? Will you describe how Oklahoma City public schools use lawsuits and other tactics to resist court orders to integrate and delayed desegregation for a decade or more while mm -hmm. it, they claim that it was complying? Um, but that's only have the, has the situation changed on high school levels and public school levels as well? Yeah, th thanks for bringing up Oklahoma. The The goal of the book is to show that resistant compliance is not an ideologically dependent project, right? Racial conservatives uh, resist and comply with law at the same time that, that racial progressives do. And Oklahoma City, unlike other notorious examples uh, post-Brown in the South, Oklahoma City said they were complying while they just used every single possible legal maneuver to delay, 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 and slow walk the, the court order around desegregation. Um, and in, in they were able to basically buy for time and delay the implementation of the decision without you know standing in front of the schoolhouse steps and announcing segregation forever without mass resisting the court order. So has the Supreme Court decision affected uh, public schools as well? 
So yeah. the Supreme Court decision specifically was with regard to higher education. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court in 2017 had already said that public K through 12 schools could not use affirmative action in their student selection where they were assigning students to schools such as like magnet schools and things like that. So we already had that decision. Affirmative action was only allowed um, at in higher education up until June of this year. It's the, the decision was fairly recent, but what do you make of how universities around the country have responded so far to the Supreme Court's decision? Yeah, so my, my favorite example is, uh, I believe, uh, Sarah Lawrence College, which has a new essay, and they actually quote directly from the Students for Fair Admission majority opinion. And then they ask students essentially to respond to that opinion. And I think the goal is to get at whether race has has been in the student's background as uh, something that um, provided a, a, a level of adversity or whether they've you know, t- done particular leadership around race. You can imagine someone being like the president of their school's black student union or something like that. They're essentially asking students to respond to race. But by quoting the majority opinion in the Supreme Court case, I think they're trying to say, hey, this is a totally legal way to do this in the application. Well, some students are have high IQs, but bad grade averages. Yeah. Is that a factor? Um, I mean, I think... Or I think is that's it only always... academic achievement that uh, is still allowed as a factor? Yeah. So the typically the two numerical measures for undergraduate admissions are your grade point average uh, in high school and your score on the college admissions tests. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're either the SAT or the ACT and universities use those two. Some do not require uh, standardized tests anymore, but most universities use a standardized test in combination with the grade point average to get at the numerical uh, pieces of academic achievement. And then universities layer on other context factors. For example, were you getting a high GPA in uh, basic level classes or were you getting a high GPA in advanced placement and honors classes that, you know, those are two different things that can weigh into the kind of student that you are. And increasingly, uh, at least in in states um, under affirmative action bans, universities are looking at pieces of educational disadvantage or hardship that may have held you back, and yet you still show indicators of promise um, that should be taken into consideration in your admissions application. Haven't some universities adopted a version of Texas's plan to uh, automatically admit students who graduate in the top 10% of their high school classes? Yeah, some like have partnerships with with local high schools or local community colleges is a big one too. Um, like the University of California system and the California State University system both partner with uh, California community colleges and have agreements where you only have to obtain a certain GPA threshold and then you can be based automatically uh, admitted into the the state university system. And, and we see that across the country, both as a way to, to get more diversity into uh, universities, but also as a, um, you know, as a partnership, as a commitment to the, the local community that the university is in. I, I, I went to schools which were very proud of their uh, arts departments. So mm-hmm. if somebody is has a low grade average but excels at making art or writes very well, can that be a factor even if the yes, grade that- level isn't isn't uh, as high as somebody else's? 
Yeah, that that has always been been um, able to be a factor, and indeed, the one of the the late 1970s Supreme Court uh, decision that you know laid out that race could be a, a a part of admissions as long as colleges and universities were pursuing a diverse student population. Um, diversity was very explicitly said in that opinion that it needed to be a broad sense of diversity. So look at, did a student grow up on a farm and how does that contribute Mm. to diversity at the college? Does a student play the oboe particularly well and how does that contribute to diversity at the college? Diversity, again, can mean so many different things and such a broad um, uh, variety of backgrounds. In our national politics, we tend to focus almost exclusively on race, but there's, you know, hundreds of different variables that admissions officers consider when looking at student applications. Well, I wouldn't want an oboe player to be my roommate in college. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Lauren S. Foley. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, the one we're discussing, On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give, and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopez at Large. We thank you very much. And return now to Lauren S. Foley, whose book on the basis of race, how higher education navigates affirmative action policies is published by NYU Press. She's an assistant professor of political science at Western Michigan University. And um, have you seen changes at your school as a result of all of this? No, my school in Michigan was already under an affirmative action ban. Um, the University of Michigan was sued in the late 1990s uh, over their admissions policies and got to Supreme Court decisions in 2003 that affirmed uh, the use of race in, in affirmative action. And then just two weeks after those decisions, a ballot initiative campaign was started here in the state to ban affirmative action in the state constitution. And that campaign went on for a few years and finally succeeded in November of 2006, the Michigan Constitution was amended to ban affirmative action. So schools uh, here at the state of Michigan have already been under an affirmative action ban. Which surprises me because I always thought Michigan had a fairly high minority population. Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't people in, in minority groups want affirmative action to be instituted? Yeah, the, the the story of these constitutional amendment campaigns is a is kind of a, a an interesting one. Um, the first of all, the name of the campaign was the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, which 
sounds a little confusing. If you find yourself to be a fan of civil rights, why would you not support that? Mm -hmm. And same with California. The name of the campaign over there was the California Civil Rights Initiative. Um, people so if who, I want to write a discriminatory bill, I should call it the Black Lives Matter bill? The um, There was a, a, a fight over the, the <laughs> language did, used yeah. in this ban. Um, and polling shows that people are more uh, supportive of affirmative action, but they are not supportive of racial preferences. And so the, it turns out that the language used in the ban was banning racial preferences. Mm. Um, and the, that combined with the name of the ban as the, the Civil Rights Initiative, um, you can imagine that that voters uh, may have been confused in, in what they were supporting and, and what was going to be the outcome of that kind of constitutional amendment. Do you see this as a, as a divisive issue as abortion bans and some of the other things that uh, we've been fighting over recently? Uh, it's hard to imagine it as divisive as abortion in the Dobbs decision. I really think that the Dobbs decision kind of exploded nationally um, across conversations and has had real political reverberations uh, in this country responsible for election results, responsible for new state laws through ballot initiatives. And you just don't see the same kind of political movement activity happening after the Students for Fair Admissions decision. I don't know of any states looking to put um, new amendments on their constitution or, yeah. or um, mobilizing social movement activity around students for fair admission the same way that people have mobilized around abortion access after Dobbs. So what do you make of how universities around the country have responded so far to the Supreme Court's decision? I mean, I think they were ready. I think there was a lot of conversation. Again, after Dobbs, you really get a sense of anything goes with the Supreme Court. Um, precedent is not, uh, there's not a value on precedent as precedent. So um, if, if Roe can get overturned, then I, I certainly think the feeling was so can affirmative action precedent. So university council has been ready. There's been a lot of conversations at professional organization and association meetings in advance of the decision. The oral arguments did not sound like it was going to go well for universities. So I think universities have been planning for a while now for what they would do in response. And, and you see them uh, talking about new policies sharing ideas, um, reiterating their their commitments to racial diversity. The opinion also left open a couple of doors. For example, military academies were excluded from the Students for Fair Admissions decision. As of right now, um, November 15, military academies can still practice affirmative action for their students. But you say that this is just the beginning because if the Supreme Court had wanted to write an opinion that would keep this issue out of the courts, they would have written something different? Um, certainly. I mean, with upholding the use of race in university admissions, upholding the Supreme Court precedent, um, showing that this was a court that was not going to revisit those decisions, um, would, would slow down federal litigation activity around affirmative action. Because they overturned Supreme Court precedent, now there's an opening for uh, conservative legal activists to bring more litigation. So, for example, litigating, I think it's obviously a, a future challenge will be to affirmative action at military academies, um, because that was explicitly left out of this decision. And I think there will be future challenges to the kind of race-neutral, resistant, compliant 
techniques that I study in my book. Um, do they actually comply with students for fair admission? Is the court willing to extend students for fair admission even further into the kind of recruitment and scholarship policies that we've talked about? Is the court going to look at race consciousness and other un- areas of university life, such as um, you know, multicultural curriculum requirements, um, such as diversity, inclusion, and equity policies? I-, I think this is just the beginning. So you expect to see new challenges? I wouldn't be surprised. No, I think that there's uh, definitely um, the the wind is underneath the sails of conservative legal activists who uh, have higher education's um, priority around multiculturalism in their sites. Well, racial diversity uh, is not a hard and fast um, decision. Clarence Thomas being on the Supreme Court makes that quite clear. Um, I mean, he is a one of the the most spoken opponents yes. of. Do you are you surprised? Yeah, just, no, am I? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, he's been pretty consistent about that in his jurisprudence um, the the whole time that he's been on the court. So that it's not surprising to me where where he came down. So, do you expect to see new challenges? Where would they be? Um, you know, just guesses. I I think there's a challenge to military academies. That would, that would happen next. Why is it that universities no longer have a compelling interest to pursue racial diversity in their student bodies? But what is the compelling interest now for military academies? Probably something around national security issues. Is that enough of a compelling interest to allow them to practice race-conscious affirmative action in their admissions? Um, the, the, the Supreme Court certainly suggested in June that that was an open question. Well, doesn't everyone have something they're passionate about? Conservatives want to end affirmative action, while liberals are passionate about maintaining it. And also, I hate to bring it up again, expanding abortion <laughs> rights. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just everybody has their passions and and the national politics uh, and the the way in which uh, where dominant political regimes lie will just determine strategy. So, for example, conservatives right now find the federal courts to be a pretty comfortable place to litigate their passions around social issues. And progressives find state ballot initiatives to be pretty comfortable places to push for something like expanding abortion access. This wasn't the case 20 years ago when it was conservatives putting ballot initiatives uh, to change state constitutions, banning gay marriage. And it was progressives using the federal courts to try to expand marriage access. So everybody's got their passions and the venue is what changes depending on dominant political regimes. And we're seeing that venue effect in regard to the, the, uh, the, the cases against former President Trump. True. Yeah, some, very some true. Some judges are more... Uh, what word do we want to use, uh, lean more toward his side and some lean more in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. And there's different um, procedures and processes that that will apply to federal courts versus state courts. You know, for example, the Georgia inquiry versus the federal court challenges. Well, you say we can't just depend on the courts to give us the goals we want, whether they're liberal or conservative. You say implementation is a major factor. Yes, I think organizations really do mediate the impact of law. It's not enough to win your desired legal outcome in courts in a lot of cases. Um, The way in which the legal rule is implemented in the organization will have a lot to do with the ultimate outcome and, and 
effect on social change. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Lauren S. Foley, F-O-L-E-Y. Her book on the basis of race, how higher education navigates, navigates affirmative action policies, published by NYU Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, you say we can't just depend on the courts to give us the goals we want, whether they're liberal or conservative. You say implementation is a major factor. Yep, that that's true. I think uh, organizations have a lot to do with, uh, you know, expanding the uh, impact of a legal rule or minimizing it and doing as little as possible in order to comply. And that's going to have an effect on the social outcomes. You say in a number of the case studies uh, that there, there were some bipartisanship involved in reaching solutions. Yeah. Uh, has that been uh, eliminated to some degree by the nature of the decision? Um, well, we haven't seen, uh, you know, legislation or anything like that uh, formally after the decision. Um, it certainly is the case that a lot of the uh, racial conservatives who want to ban affirmative action are strong proponents of uh, admissions techniques that prioritize socioeconomic diversity instead. And so there was a little of that in California for the University of California regents who were approving these policies who might otherwise be uh, against affirmative action based on race. And also in Texas, um, the people who have continuously defended the new Texas legislative solutions. Some of them have been more conservatives uh, from a more conservative bent who are really supportive of getting a diversity of Texas high schools into the Texas uh, university system. Well, I mentioned legacy admissions earlier, the Supreme Court's recent decision on that. Aren't they privileges for the the privileged? Um, yep. Give is if you look at you know uh, parents are obviously people who are uh, a couple decades removed from graduating from college, um, at least eighteen years, uh, and unless they had their children during college, and so you have to look at how diverse universities were, you know, twenty years ago. But if and, I went uh, to Columbia, let's say, which I didn't, by the way, <laughs> um, but if I went to Columbia, would uh, my child automatically? I have uh, greater access to uh, to Columbia to become being accepted to, by Columbia. Yep, it, it, it the current practices of most universities are to uh, give a special look at uh, legacies, children of alumni, and they kind of receive a little tag in the admissions process, and then at the very end of the process, maybe you would look at the the legacy students and if there was someone right on the line perhaps between an admissions or, or an admit decision or a waitlist decision, maybe you would bump them up to admit because their parents have been legacies. Perhaps if this is, you know, one way it could be done. But it, it, it is something that most uh, admissions offices are conscious of is whether or not an applicant was the child of an alum. And certainly alumni classes from two and three decades ago were less racially diverse than now. Well, Jim Crow kind of ended almost a century ago, and yet we're still fighting some of those battles? Universities have other interests that they're keeping in mind. You know, the, the desire to have winning sports teams, the desire to have, along with legacy admissions, the other controversial one is uh, 
what's called development admissions or admissions for students whose families could afford to be making sizable contributions to the university and uh, whether or not it's okay to give those students a preference as well, because obviously universities are trying to maintain themselves and, and fundraise. And so looking at, um, the ability to to bring in more money through development or bring in more victories through athletics are factors the university is taking into consideration. Has uh, whether the the applicant is male or female been a a factor in the decision making process? Yeah, uh, for some universities it is, and this hasn't been litigated yet. Um, I, I do say yet because it is a chance that um, preferences uh, based on gender will be on the horizon. Actually, these days, it frequently is is preferences for male applicants. An example would be small liberal arts colleges, if they didn't look at gender in their admissions process, might end up with 60 or even 70% women. And those women presumably did not want to go to a majority female college or all female, or else they would have chosen one. And so uh, admissions offices practice affirmative action for men so that they can have a more even gender split. And those could be challenged by female plaintiffs down the road. We, uh, in the, in the, the five, 10 minutes we have left, <laughs> uh, I'm going to leave it up to you to tell me the other things that you consider important. Have I left anything out? Yeah, no, this has been a wonderfully free-ranging conversation. I, I appreciate your emphasis on uh, the organizations have a role here in the the impact of law. And um, one thing that we're seeing, again, as I, I think I've mentioned before, is that just the tremendous creativity and innovativeness that is going to come now from universities as they share um, ideas for implementation. And certainly uh, another point I'd like to emphasize to folks is that this is only the beginning. I think that there's definitely litigation on the horizon regarding exactly how students for fair admission uh, is applied both to other areas of, of race-conscious public policy, but also to other university policies around diversity and inclusion. I think that we're going to see more lawsuits in the years to come. Well, as I mentioned earlier, in a number of case studies, you show that there was some bipartisanship involved in mm -hmm. reaching solutions. Um, has that been made more difficult by the Supreme Court's recent decision? I mean, to the extent that universities will put into place policies that prioritize socioeconomic diversity, policies that advantage students from more rural communities, perhaps that are predominantly white, um, you could you know, perhaps see bipartisan agreement around these new policy solutions. I think where we're going to continue to see polarization is if future lawsuits target diversity and inclusion policies at universities. These tend to be um, more uh, hotly contested by people dependent on ideology. Well, in a rural community, a, a white kid might very well have less interest in achieving uh, academically than, than a, a child of, of, you know, either of color or uh, from an immigrant family. So does, is that a factor or is it simply the color of skin that is often the major factor? So much of it has to do with access and knowledge. You know, a rural community, do, do they know about the admissions procedure to get into, you know, more selective universities? Are they thinking even outside of their, their home community? Um, as universities broaden their recruitment, 
um, they might be able to to reach more of these students and and broaden recruitment strategies. Looking more at socioeconomic diversity is certainly a tool that universities are going to start thinking about using, and and I should say have been using already, but will only expand on now that they can no longer use affirmative action. The reviews for your book have been wonderful. Um, what kind of feedback are you getting? Are people saying, hey, uh, I see something that we might do for the future? Um, I mean, I think people want to know what kind of crystal ball that I have, that I wrote a book about affirmative action bans that came out four months after the ban on affirmative action, um, in which I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I cannot predict the future. Um, but well, You I, were I working that, on this book before. Yes. And yes, long, did, long, did you long see before. It come, did you see it coming, or were you surprised and say, oh, gee, the last 150 yeah. pages are going to have to be changed a bit? Um, the... The, the loud ringing in my ears started when Justice Kennedy retired during President Trump's administration, and I knew that whoever replaced him was not going to be as moderate on social issues as Kennedy was. And then certainly the other shoe dropped when Justice Ginsburg passed away. And you knew that Mitch McConnell was going to push to fill that vacancy before the election even, um, and certainly with someone who was not going to be as progressive as Justice Ginsburg on these issues. And so by the time uh, Kavanaugh and then certainly Coney Barrett arrive, um, the the writing for people who are watching the court and its decisions on race, the, the writing is really on the wall at that point for university admissions policies. And it's just a matter of um, when, not if. But it's not necessarily permanent, as we've seen with decisions regarding abortion, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's I think that these I mean, another justices- court 10 years down the line might reverse all of this. And uh, yeah. be pushing it in a totally different direction. I mean, if there's anything that we've seen from this court, it's that courts are willing to to totally reverse and push in a, a different direction. And absolutely progressive activists would want a, a president, a Democratic president to put uh, progressives on the court who would be willing to do that. So are universities uh, uh, now developing new strategies for getting around all of this? Um, I mean, definitely complying. I've never met a university that wants to be sued. So it's always compliance is the first thing they're thinking about. And the second thing they're thinking about is what can we do that is still permissible within law? But absolutely, what is now constitutionally permissible is certainly something that universities are are focused on and thinking about. And uh, it's kind of a, a shock in the year 2023 20, uh, to even be discussing issues like racial diversity in an educational environment, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the what will be even more shocking is when we start seeing the results of this decision. Um, it's it's going to decimate racially diverse populations in, in some areas. My book focuses on undergraduate admissions and strategies there, but particularly for graduate school admissions, mm-hmm. um, it can be really difficult to overcome the disadvantage of not having affirmative action. I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. I've been speaking with Lauren S. Foley. Her book, On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies, it's published by NYU Press. Anything you want to add? Uh, No, I just really appreciate you having me on the show. Thank you so much, Leonard. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for being on our show, and uh, this is important stuff. Uh, Do you feel that it, it doesn't get enough attention? Uh, well, I mean, because you're using because this is something we discuss on the station a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you watch the news on television, there are usually three stories, and that <laughs> they pretty much dominate everything. And yet, 
things like what you've written about here affect a large segment of our population. Yeah, this case is going to get expanded and applied elsewhere and expanded even on universities. And I do feel like that point is something that people are missing. This is very much the beginning and not the end of the story. Okay, well, thank you again so much for being on our show. And that brings us to the end of our show. We uh, had a problem with our podcast recently, but they're being restored, although not necessarily in order. But uh, you can go to your favorite podcast provider and check out shows from last October on to today that have been missing. Uh, it was a, a, an economic matter that WBAI has finally worked out with the podcast providers. Uh, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI um, during these rough times. Uh, public radio in general is going for tough times, for BAI in particular, because we don't take funding credits or foundation grants and things like that. We rely pretty much on our listening audience to keep us going, which allows us to be free speech radio, but um, it also puts us in a bind at times. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now to show your support. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2WBAI.org. We need to help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing on the basis of race, how higher education navigates affirmative action policies by Lauren S. Foley. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. For $5, $10, $15, $20 a month or more, whatever you can, uh, you feel comfortable with, for as long as you wish. And um, that really helps us because it allows us to plan for the future. And we would be happy to send a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more as a show of our appreciation. But either way, I hope you'll call now because BAI, as I said, relies 100% on listener donations. Uh, if Leonard Lopate at large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it? You can do that by calling 212-209-2950 by going online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much and hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when Robert Henley will be here to discuss the important news stories that are getting much too little attention. We'll see you then. 